Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Last week on Power Hour, we talked about coal the world's fastest growing energy source, uh, a fact that most people don't know. We talked about it with Dr. Frank Clemente, who gave a lot of really, really interesting big picture stats about the coal industry. Well, today we're going to go into the coal industry, but in a different way. We're going to talk with um, an executive in the coal industry, um, but also someone who's worked in the mines at the same time, about what life is like inside the industry how the world sees the industry, and how the industry sees the world. Uh, our guest's name is Heath Lovell. He works for uh, Alliance Coal. I was fortunate uh, earlier this year to speak at one of their public events. Uh, it was in Evansville, Indiana. And earlier in the day, I got to go to the Riverview Coal Mine, uh, which was uh, quite an experience. It was I was really impressed by... You know, the intelligence of the workers, how thoughtful they were, um, just all, all kinds of amazing technology. And I knew that that would be the case in the abstract, but it was just really cool to see them, to see how proud they were of their work, and, and to see how knowledgeable they were about energy, certainly compared to uh, a lot of college professors that I know. Um, so anyway, it'll be really interesting to have Heath on the show to hear his perspective on things. And... Well, without further ado, let's get to it. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now on Power Hour is Heath Lovell of Alliance Coal. Heath, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. So you and I have uh, a bit of history, at least a bit of, of recent history. I was fortunate enough earlier this year to... Uh, speak at a conference put on by or an event put on by your company, um, and in the process, uh, in the process of that, I got to see what you know an actual coal mine was like. Of course, I had read about it a lot, but but being there uh, was very different. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, during this, uh, the theme I kind of want to explore is what is it actually like to be in the coal industry? What does the coal industry do? How do people see themselves? But uh, I guess stepping back from that for a second. How did you get into the coal industry? Well, I would say the way I got into the coal industry was a typical way that most of our employees got into the coal industry, and that was through a family connection. Um, I had a grandfather that worked in the coal industry. Uh, my father worked in the coal industry. And even now, I've got uh, brother, stepbrother, uh, cousins, uh, uncle, uh, etc. that that still work in the coal industry. So for me, the coal industry, a coal mine was not some faraway concept. For me, coal mining was something that, that, that we talked about every day. You know, I kind of joke that, uh, you know, when, when somebody's parents come home, they sit down at the dinner table, they talk about, uh, you know, what's going on at the school or what's going on in the town. For me, it was always when we sit down around the dinner table, 
we talked about coal and what it was like in the coal mine. And, and that's what I grew up around. That's what I knew. So for me, I grew up around it. I was familiar with it. Uh, went to uh, college. One for sure, as many people uh, can uh, understand, one for sure what I wanted to do. So I went in uh, to uh, electrical engineering and pursued my degree in that, knowing that if I wanted to get into mining, that would, you know, serve me well. However, if I didn't want to get into mining, you know, that, that was a degree that could be used in lots of places. And so I, I chose that field of study. And my first summer, uh, after my freshman year, uh, to, you know, to help pay my way and pay my expenses through college, I worked underground in a coal mine. And uh, to be honest, really, really enjoyed it, made lots of money. More importantly, enjoyed what I did enjoyed the work, enjoyed the people I worked with, and uh, from there, pretty much uh, been in mining ever since. All right, so just to, to make the picture even more concrete for mm-hmm. listeners, what is, it, what is it like to work at a coal mine? What's it like, um, I mean, what, what actually is going on there? Because I think some people might just think, oh, it's just a hole in the ground and you have a pickaxe or something like that and you, you take the stuff out. Well, and, and as I describe it, I'll try to go ahead and, and point out some of the misconceptions um, that people have about mining. You know, one thing is I think people think of mining as something that we uh, we do with pickaxes, something we do with mules, something that's very low tech. I think uh, most people would be surprised to learn that the the piece of equipment called a continuous miner or just a miner uh, that actually cuts the coal is operated off a small remote box, not much bigger than what uh, you know what kids have with the Xbox, the, the Xbox uh, controller. And that piece of equipment is about 10 foot wide, about four foot tall, 37 foot long, and uh, you know costs well north of two million dollars. And so this is a very and, and weighs just to give you an idea weighs about 66 tons. And so rather than, you know, what people think of in the 30s or 40s of somebody down there digging with a pickaxe, you've got an operator that has this little remote box that's standing back controlling this high-tech, expensive machine that's actually cutting the coal and loading the coal. So one that that's one thing that I think people uh, don't necessarily understand. The other is just how massive a coal mine is. You know, I think people think of a cave or they think of a little hole um, when, you know, they, they think they'll be claustrophobic. But for most people, when you first go down into a coal mine, it is just wide open. And, you know, I always tell people, if you look in front of you and you look behind you, you can't even see the other end of the coal mine. I mean, once you get down to that level where the coal is, you know, most of our mines are well over three miles from one end to the other. So it's very expansive to you know, it's something that you really can't describe to people that haven't been there, but the best way I attempt to do that is it's similar to a parking garage to where, you know, you may have to bend your head over a little bit, but really you've got a roof and you've got a floor, but it's pretty wide open in between there. And so I think it's it's really spread out. Uh, that's another thing that maybe people don't realize. And as far as describing what it's like, I think it's it's very hard to understand, especially for people coming from a factory environment, because what a coal miner does every day and the reason why so many coal miners love what they do is because it's 
it's never the same. It's not routine. It's not like you're working in the factory building a car to where you're taking apart, putting it together, and doing it over and over a thousand times a day. You know, the one aspect of mining is that when you take a ton of coal out of the coal mine, then you have to move to get that next ton. You're always moving, and you're always dealing with uh, with whatever geology is going on. You're always trying to deal with problems. And so because of that, it's an environment that, one, really builds teamwork. You know, you've got a group of 16 people that are together every day, all day. And so you really build up that teamwork concept. And then, two, you always you're doing something different. You know, you don't know what tomorrow is. You know, you have something to do, but you don't necessarily know what it is. And um, I think that that point was was hammered home when we were talking to some some contracting agencies who were helping us hire individuals. And we were talking about a local car manufacturer, and I asked him, I said, do you think we'll have trouble hiring people away from this? And it's a large, well-known manufacturer that pays well, great benefits, et cetera. And he said, I have no doubt that we can hire as many as we want from them because anybody that knows what a coal mine work is like compared to factory work, if you've ever experienced coal mine work, you'll never want to go back to factory work. Because what we do as coal miners every day is not monotonous. It's something new, different every day. And again, I think that's why that's why so many people enjoy it. Yeah, that's that's one aspect that I noticed when I was there that people really seemed to enjoy uh, what what they were doing. And and that's certainly not something that's conveyed. It's it's usually in the media. It's usually the view at most that well, these are kind of you know societies. Uh, dullards who have nothing, you know, who have no other options. So they're sort of uh, forced by circumstance to work in this primitive industry making poison, da 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 But I just mean even even in terms of just the idea that people could enjoy it is not even on the radar. Right. I, I completely agree. I think that that the perception out there is that people are forced to do it. And again, you know, you, you had a chance to see that, but you know, when, when I visit with our employees and, and I watch them work and you see them every day, you certainly don't get that idea. I mean, most of these people uh, really, really enjoy what they do and, uh, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't do anything else. Um, you know, I've, I've told the story when the when the auto manufacturing um, started to decrease in 08, uh, we probably hired, you know, 10 to 20 from a very national, prominent car manufacturer. Um, and so they came to work for us back to the downsizing in the auto industry. And as the auto industry picked up, those individuals had an opportunity to go back to their for, former employer. And to this date, not a single one has done that. And I think that goes back to the, the pay we offer, that goes back to the benefits we offer, and most importantly, that goes to them enjoying what they do every day, looking forward to coming to work, being part of a team that's down there working on a project that's mining coal together, and and it's not repetitive. You know, they know they're they're really we depend on each employee to be a problem solver, to be a teamwork team player, and to you know do the best they can every day. And and yeah, I, I agree. I think they really enjoy it. So just to give listeners a further sense of a coal mine, what are the T- take the kind of mine that you work with at at Riverview, um, you know, which is the one 
that I visited. What is what does the mine consist of in terms of where the coal is, how it's distributed? I just think there's very little education about the layout uh, of a mine. Okay. Uh, normally, in what I'll refer to as the Illinois Basin, which is West Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois, coal exists in a seam. And so if you had a cross-section of the ground, it would be just one layer that, that is horizontal. Now, in some places, it's very flat and level. Uh, in other places, it, it may roll gently, but it still exists in a seam. And that seam typically is anywhere from, you know, 40 to 60 feet below the surface. And, you know, that's where typically you see surface mines where they take all the dirt off the top of it and then get the coal and then put the dirt back. Um, but mostly in the Illinois Basin, we have underground mines. And basically that's where that seam of coal is far enough below the surface that it's too expensive to, to do it from surface. So basically uh, that coal will be anywhere from 100 feet below the surface all the way down to 11, 1200 feet below the surface. And it runs horizontal. So in, in most cases, it's anywhere from 42 inches thick to eight feet thick. And again, I mean, there, there are coal seams that are thinner than that, than the 42 inches, but at this time, it's really hard to be profitable. Uh, for the most part, the active mines that you'll find today are anywhere from, from 48 inches and above. And so to get that coal from you know, four, 500 feet deep, basically there are two things you have to do. One is to drill a shaft straight down and typically we'll drill a shaft to, to drop supplies in, to also let people go in and out of the mine and also have ventilation for the mine. And then you have to bring the coal out. And so for the coal, we usually dig a slope. And I know this is really hard to picture without uh, an illustration to look at, but a slope is just basically an opening 15 foot by 15 foot that is at an angle of, say, 16 degrees from the surface all the way down to where the coal is. And so typically for a, for a mine 400 feet deep, that slope is about 1,500 foot long if it is at a 16 degree angle. And so that slope allows really big equipment to go in and out of the mine, and it also provides an access to bring all the coal out. And, uh, you know, the other thing that's hard to visualize, but when the mining process is taking place, you have these 54-inch conveyors that are basically just a rubber belt that's bringing all that material out of the mine constantly. So I don't know if that was if that helps answer the question. It gets really detailed, and it's, it's kind of hard to picture without, uh, without an illustration to look at. Yeah, I think it's helpful just to understand the idea of a seam and the you know the the row of material that you're dealing with and the fact that it exists at a depth underground in many cases that you can't just scoop it up uh, from the surface. I think it just gives a visual of of what what the process needs to accomplish, namely you know extracting all of that in an economic way without you know without endangering the workers, et cetera, et cetera. And the other thing I'll point out about how we extract it is typically we will leave over 50% of the coal in place so that there's still material, there's still coal in place to support the roof. And that way from the surface, 
you can you can't tell that there was ever any mining to take place. And so we'll take out about forty to forty five percent, and then we'll leave sixty to fifty five percent to continue to support the roof not only for us while we're mining, but also so that the surface never subsides and that there's there's no damage and no no perception from the surface that mining never took place. Interesting. So how does the average coal worker, or I'm going to say the coal workers you deal with, how do they, how do they think about the impact of their job? Because, you know, publicly it's considered to be, uh, for the most part, a, a negative thing or an unnecessary evil. I think two, two ways. I think um, from their point of view, they, they don't think about the big picture. They think about this is something I enjoy. This is something that I make great money doing. Uh, and, you know, just to put it in perspective, I'd say the average wage across the industry is, you know, uh, approximately 75000 a year on a W-2. You know, most, most miners are making anywhere from 22 to $28 an hour. Um, so it's great, something they enjoy, something they can make a lot of money at. There's a lot of opportunity for overtime something they have great benefits at, uh, the normal, the normal health plan is for minors is to provide hundred percent health coverage, not only for the employee, but also their spouse and also any dependents they have. Um, so, uh, again, with, along with all the other 401k type benefits, so they have great insurance, great money. It's something they enjoy. So most, most of them view it as, you know, this this is a great way to provide for my family, and that's what I want to do. And they're, they're fairly insulated from from the outside world, from the media, from the um, the newspapers, TV, because usually where there are coal mines, there are several coal mines, you know, kind of like West Kentucky and Southern Indiana and Southern Illinois. You know, there's a lot of them that exist in that pocket. And so they're almost insulated with people that, that understand mining and appreciate what they do and understand what they do. And so I think they, they do, you know, what they don't like seeing is stories on the media because, you know, they, they know that they're getting it all wrong, but they just kind of ignore that and say, well, they don't understand what we do. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I'm providing a great life for my family, and I'm just going to keep doing it. I think maybe the point that they miss from time to time is some of the items that you talk about, which is how much of a difference coal and fossil fuels make in the lives of not only people in America, but in the lives of people around the world. I think that is what maybe they don't fully appreciate that, you know, if if we didn't have somebody that was willing to go underground and mine coal every day, it would drastically approve, drastically affect the quality of life of everyone else in the country. And I, you know, I wish, I wish everyone understood that so that they, they being the miners receive the credit they deserve. Um, again, it doesn't seem to bother them. You know, they like what they do. They're making great money. They just keep doing it. But, um, I think it, it would help if, if people fully understood the magnitude of, uh, of what a difference coal makes. So, what are they? I mean, they must be familiar with the idea that what they're doing is destroying the planet. What do they think about that? <laughs> Again, I think it's something that they just they just don't think about, and I think they don't think about it because 
one, they don't know how to respond to it. And two, they don't know how to change other people's viewpoint. And so I think, you know, really they just kind of ignored that whole standing. I mean, again, they know what they do. They know they're happy. They just, they keep doing it and they ignore the fact that they're destroying the planet. Um, what does affect them is when you look at what happened in 2012, where, you know, we had coal companies going bankrupt and mine shutting down. That's when it really brings them, brings it home for all of them because they see that this public perception of us destroying the planet it's not just a TV story or a newspaper article. It's something that has made it into regulation that's then shutting minds down and forcing them to be out of work. And that's where they get really, really frustrated. That, that's what causes them worry is losing their job. It's not necessarily what somebody in Washington, D.C. thinks. But, again, the issue is um, I don't think they think about it a lot because, uh, as with many of us, they don't know how to change it and they don't know what they can do to make a difference. Do they, I guess, do they believe it? I mean, do they? I guess... No, I, I mean, again, I, I don't think they, um, they don't believe it. They just don't necessarily know the data points and the science to defend it if someone asked. But, again, I don't, I don't think any of them come to work each day thinking that they're destroying the planet for uh, their kids and grandchildren. And I think part of the reason they don't is because, and you know, you, you had the advantage of coming on fight with an underground mine. Uh, you don't see anything. I mean, you know, with Riverview, you have a beautiful green cornfield on one side, a beautiful green cornfield on the other side. You've got a food processing plant that's, you know, a little bit down the road and really, other than the buildings and a coal pile, you know, we have very, very minimal impact on the environment. And then not to mention, even with the power plant in, um, you know, in West Kentucky that they're familiar with, I mean, you know, you see the, the, the water condensing from the cooling uh, towers. But other than that, I mean, the skies in, in West Kentucky and Indiana and Illinois are the cleanest they've been in years. And so... They don't, I mean, they, they, they hear that from the national media, but that's not reality for them. Reality for them is that, you know, the mine is, you know, unless somebody said that's a coal mine, you wouldn't even know what's there. And two, the water, the air, everything they surround their communities is the cleanest it's ever been. And so, you know, they don't, they don't, they have trouble understanding why people are against coal and why people say that we're destroying the environment. Do you think it's important for them too? I do. Um, I think it's important from the standpoint that I think they need to understand why what they're doing is so important. Uh, because if, if they don't believe in coal and what a difference fossil fuels make, then I think it's, it's hard for anybody else to believe it because, you know, they're the ones that are doing it every day and, you know, they should be the, the biggest believers out there. I mean, do you think that's, that's more of a motivation thing or an advocacy thing? Mm, I, th I think both. I think a motivation, I, I think it, um, you know, when somebody has the vision of, 
of what the end product is. You know, kind of when you think about the, uh, the old story of, uh, you know, it's a bricklayer views and he's just adding another brick to a brick to a brick. It's a different work product than if a bricklayer is saying, you know, I'm building the best cathedral in all of Europe. You know, when you have that vision, you know, it does tend to affect the work product. So I would hope that they would have that vision. But then also I think it's important that, uh, you know, for the advocacy because, I mean, certainly the mainstream media is not an advocate for coal. And certainly uh, the president yesterday, along with all his administration, is actively trying to regulate coal out of business. So if, if the coal industry being companies and employees, if we're not our own advocates, um, you know, I don't think, I don't think anybody else, I think we should be our own advocates before we expect others to advocate for ourselves. How much of that do you think involves uh, the workers? Because, you know, at CIP, we have, I love fossil fuels, and I have this dream of at some point getting all the fossil fuel industries to band together and wear shirts and, and, uh, at least, at least like the Facebook page. Um, and, you know, people do, but it seems there are hundreds of thousands of workers in these industries, and um, I at least haven't figured out how to mobilize them. And I'm not, I mean, of course, that there are always better ways to communicate, but uh, it's, it's tricky for me to figure out how much people feel the need to do something like that or that they would like to. I think the two hurdles that, that we have are one, um, education, because I think, um, you know, too often, um, our employees hear that, hear the wrong message about why coal is good. And they hear it's just about, it's just about, you know, your light bill going up a hundred dollars a month, or it's just about, um, you know, a few jobs in East Kentucky. I think they are, I mean, electricity is so easy to have in the U S that we have become complacent and they, even people that work in the coal mine do not fully understand how much better our life is because of electricity. So one, I think they need some, um, that we all need education Two, I think they're complacent because over the past 20 years, they've had such a difficult time making a difference. Um, you know, whether it's, whether it's making a difference in the political process or making a difference in what the regulatory agencies are doing. Um, you know, I mean, we, we've tried to organize, we've tried to fight, we've tried to be vocal and yet, you know, it, it long-term, it doesn't seem to make a difference. You know, when you, when you hear people talk about in the seventies, when we had the, the oil embargo going on, uh, mining, mining and people that were coal miners were the heroes because they were the ones that were providing domestic energy supply. And unfortunately, that has been too long ago. You know, what most of our employees think of now is they think of the Clean Air Act in the 90s and what devastation it brought to, you know, mines closing, mines shutting down, and here the last, you know, five to ten years, we're, we're seeing more devastation and really people very intent on closing our industry down. I mean, think of what Bill McKibben said that, that, you know, coal and fossil fuels are public enemy number one. So they're used to hearing that rhetoric and they look back at everything coal companies and, 
and them as individuals have tried to do, and they can't see where it's made a difference, at least in the last 20 years. And so they, I think because of both those two things, lack of education and lack of perceived result, people are extremely complacent out of uh, almost out of frustration. So what do we do about that? <laughs> well, unfortunately, um, although I'm not as young as you are, I was not, I can't remember the seventies when coal miners were heroes. Although, um, I look forward to the day when we're heroes again. And, and I do think we're getting, I, I think we're getting closer. I think the first step is for people to understand what electricity means. And, and your last power hour with Dr. Clemente was a wonderful example of that. And when we use some of his slides and some of his data, when we hire, uh, you know, employees to, to begin to work in the coal mines to help them understand. But I think we've got to, to do a better job of that. And to me, it's, it's um, a great example when you think of yesterday and we had an individual that summarized all the news stories surrounding the uh, president's speech about climate change and the new proposals that his administration is doing. And with one exception, coal companies and media outlets alike all focused on would this affect jobs or not. And I was very disappointed that nobody, I mean, they would point out that the rest of the world, India, China, et cetera, the rest of the world were greatly increasing their use of coal, but yet they never would say why. They would just say that industry's worried about jobs or, you know, this politician's from a coal state and he's worried about jobs. They completely miss out on what you bring to the table, which is India and China are using more coal because it changes quality of life. It lets people live longer. It lets people have clean water. It lets people have hospitals. Uh, you know, I thought Bill Gates did a, a great job two weeks ago on 60 Minutes when he talked about all the vaccinations. You know, the reason we don't have vaccinations in Africa and the reason that so many infants die in Africa is not because we don't have them. We have the vaccinations. It's not because we can't pay for them. We can pay for them. It's not because we can't ship them. We've got a great logistics network around the globe. It's because when they get there, we can't refrigerate them. And if we had electricity to power refrigerators, it solves that problem. And yet yesterday was a perfect example that very, very, very few people, even in our own industry, I mean, you had coal companies coming out with press releases that said this, this, this regulation would, would have a tremendous impact on jobs. Well, it would, but they're missing the point. And so, one, I think we have to help people understand what electricity means to how we live, how long we live, and, and the quality of our life. So that's step one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that it's worth talking about steps two, three, and four until uh, after we work on step one. Although I do think it, it starts with um, with those in the education system now, you know, either, you know, first through 12th grade, certainly through college, because I think if, if they make it through our education system and through college without hearing this message, then I think our education has done a disservice to them. And two, I think it's hard to reach them once they're past that point. 
Yeah, that is a lot of the job, though. I mean, at least that's a lot of what CIP focuses on. I mean, ultimately, we want younger ages to be exposed to our materials. Um, but, you know, we have a whole nation full of adults that it would be really good to be able to to persuade. And, and I think there's definitely a lot that's doable there. I mean, we we have experienced good results. And I, yeah, I haven't yet found a ceiling to that. Um, and I hope I don't for a while in terms of, you know, the better you explain it, uh, the more of the proper principles you employ to explain things, the more people can be swayed because, well, there's just a really compelling case on that, that they've never heard. And a lot about the other case doesn't make any sense. I guess what I tend to, to worry about is that, um, you know, once people are adults and once they're working and have families and have jobs, that, um, you know, they don't have necessarily a vested interest to where, I mean, and again, we've made it so convenient. You know, it, it's hard for most of the country to ever foresee a time when they plug something into the wall and they don't have electricity. And so um, I, I think the question is how we make, how do we educate them to the point that they care about fossil fuels? Because right now, I mean, you know, they've got everything. I mean, again, you know, average age is well north of 70, and electricity's everywhere. And, you know, too often I think the environmental groups have um, have made this argument about, well, just turn your lights off, turn more lights off, and turn your thermostat down a degree or two. You know, they, they've downplayed how much fossil fuel and coal what it means to, to someone's life. You know, they don't think about clean water. They don't think about sanitation systems. They don't think about hospitals. They don't think about the difference between reliable and unreliable electricity. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, I mean, one of the points you're raising is just getting them to the table, in effect, or getting them to even consume content. Because one thing, if I can have an hour-long conversation with someone, it's another thing if they don't want to have that conversation or they don't feel motivated to and then they just have their their existing view. And my sense is that part, part of the solution will be creating a positive culture around it. So not just something that is saying, you know, without this, you won't have X. Without this, you won't have Y. But that is rather making exciting or even cool all the different developments uh, that are going on and, and connecting it to a lot of technology and then connecting it to a lot of technological potential that we could be realizing. And you can do that both for the more developed world, but certainly for the uh, undeveloped world, where it's very clear that there are things that they would aspire to that they do not have yet. And it's a, an exciting prospect for them to have it. And that's a prospect that involves you know, the best energy technologies, not the worst. I think it is interesting to think about that for the most part, undeveloped nations think a lot more of fossil fuels and coal than we as Americans do because they understand what it means so much better than the average American. Uh, yeah, and part of you know, part of the job of a community is because they're, the context that they're in makes, makes the necessity of a certain caliber of energy very, it's automatically clear to them because they lack it. Um, and versus, you know, people in the U.S. where it just seems like the norm. And it's hard to imagine that anything could happen that would change that norm. Uh, so 
you know, part of motivating an action is that people see that there's a real alternative at stake. Because if there's no alternative, you know, if you're going to get the same result no matter what, why would you take action? Um, and then here, in this case, we're taught, well, the only alternative is do we, uh, you know, do we ruin our planet for future generations or not? Like, that's, that's the choice that Obama presents us. And then, well, more people are going to be enthusiastic about let's not, uh, let's not do that. But if it's, you know, if it's a different alternative, if it's, you know, if it's, um, you know, do we continue the great quest for human progress and human flourishing and, um, you know, liberate it for everyone around the world and bring it to the next level in the U.S., you know, or do we go back to 13th century energy? It's a different, different choice. Well, I think you've done a great job in the past of pointing out that the opponents of coal have really done a great job at exaggerating the negatives and minimizing the benefits. And part of minimizing the benefits is I think as a, as a nation, we have completely separated electricity from coal. You know, I mean, everybody loves electricity. Everybody wants electricity. But, you know, I mean, the joke uh, among the coal industry is anytime you get on a plane and and you sit down next to somebody and, you know, you, you get through those pleasantries, ah, where are you from and what are you doing? And you tell somebody, well, I work for a coal company. You always get one or two responses. You either get, wow, I didn't know we still use coal or why do we, why do we still use coal and why are you killing the planet? And, you know, I think they that say just, we, they say they don't know we still use coal. Yes. That that they though people will make the comment, you mean we really still use coal? And I think that's because you know there's such a huge disconnect between people associating coal with electricity. That you know electricity is not just electricity. That you know you don't just turn the light switch on and it's there. I think they forget where it comes from. But even the the next step is even when they think where it comes from, they don't realize. That coal's, you know, 40 plus percent of all electricity. And really, you know, the, the best base load generation of, of any source out there, certainly the cheapest. Yeah, that's, it's, one thing being in, in a field like this, it's important to just realize that there's a lot of just lack of knowledge. I mean, leaving aside prejudices and whatnot, there's a lot of lack of knowledge. And I haven't, find that that works to my benefit because part of the part of making it a positive is even just explaining how the world works like today i just or a couple days ago i got some different all the different types of uh pieces of coal in the mail so you know i have anthracite subbituminous bituminous lignite and then you know peat which comes before um and just being able to explain to someone you know this is you know your tesla this is this is how it runs. Like they turn this into you being able to go to the grocery store. And that's really f a fascinating thing. And it's, uh, you, know, it, you know, that's why I call the electric car the coal car. Well, and I think, I think people, they, yeah, there, there's, there is a lot of misinformation or lack of information back to, I mean, you know, really coal is just a very compressed, 
you know, wood product that's just really, really energy dense. And then, I mean, that's why we use it. It's, you know, it's really, really energy dense. And I think, you know, too often people view it as this, just something dirty, this, you know, I hate to use the word poison, but they use it as some foreign substance when rather than, you know, it's just another form of carbon that's just a lot more energy dense than, than wood or other things that we can burn. Yeah, so if we talk about what are the what's the potential for successful activism, we talked a little bit about the you know the people within the coal industry or the the workers. If I were to give you a couple of options in terms of people who are would be possible to influence and high leverage to influence, um, what do you think about coal executives? Um, let's see who else. Uh, well, coal executives and Coal associations and politicians. I'll give the least likely to be influenced is, uh, in my opinion, has to be the politicians, because I mean, one, there's so much misinformation out there. Just like yesterday, when the the president said, uh, you know, the debate is over. And, you know, we don't need a meeting of the Flat Earth Society. And I think the politicians... The Flat Earth Society agreed with him, I heard. <laughs> they did agree with that. I, I heard that, too, that they thought that uh, humans were having an impact on climate, which I didn't realize that uh, society still existed. I'm not for sure. Well, I don't know that anybody would want to agree with, uh, with them on any of their theories uh, based on their names. But, but I think, you know... But if you look at all the responses yesterday from politicians, even ones from coal states, nobody, no, none of them that I could find came out and voiced their opinion that, one, we weren't having global warming or climate change, although, I mean, what is change? Who knows? Uh, or two, even if it is warming, that it's not man-made. Or if it's man-made, it's not catastrophic. And, and, you know, to me, those are fairly easy points to understand when you look at the data. But not one politician, excuse me, not one politician I could find was making those points. I mean, too often they tended to, to be on the other side, which was say, well, I think that maybe we are having an impact on the climate, but we need to think about jobs. That, I mean, to me, that is completely the wrong argument, you know, and, and they're, they're even going further and buying into this theory that it doesn't matter what's wrong with our weather. It's always because of fossil fuel, whether it's drought, whether it's too much rain, whether it's too cold, whether it's too warm, it must be fossil fuels point. And I have not seen with very, with a few exceptions, politicians that that can counter that argument. And so I don't know if they just, if they are buying into the media and that belief, or if they don't understand it to make a valid argument. But I, I think that group by far is the, the toughest group. Because they've been so indoctrinated or because they don't care because they're afraid to stand out on a limb. I, th I think it's that they've been so indoctrinated, and because the left 
And the media have done such a good job of ostracizing anybody that disagrees with them. You know, they, they've made such a, they, they're so good at, if you try to disagree with them, you know, they, they ridicule you, they make fun of you, they, they ignore you. They have all these tactics to where eventually people just, they give in. Uh, you know, they won't do the work to do the research, to understand it, and they just, they just give in. And, you know, I mean, listen, you know, back to President Obama's speech yesterday, I mean, you know, after his tone and his word choice, uh, you know, if somebody's listening to that, I think it, it's very hard to walk away saying, I disagree. You know, it's a lot easier to just say, wow, he must be right. If it is the warmest in, you know, 10 of the warmest 15 years on record or, or 10, of the year, 10 of the warmest years on record in the last 15 years, wow, that's really bad. It must be true. And they just, they give in. Yeah, well, then I, it makes me wonder what what would change if there were better arguments out there. Because it's such a, I mean, I agree that the debate is over. I mean, <laughs> one side is very clearly bizarre. And I mean, it's just such a stupid thing. It's, I mean, it's not a stupid question of how CO2 exactly, but... Yeah, there's man-made climate change in any area. I mean, everything we do has some effect on the climate. The question, the climate, the question is: Is it big or small, good or bad? And there are sort of four options: very small, bad; very big, bad; very small, good; very big, good. Um, and as far as we can tell, it's very small something, and the thing that causes it is very, 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 very big, good. So yeah, there's no debate. To me, it's very frustrating that when you see the data coming out that shows actual temperature by satellite is below even the lowest prediction. And that, you know, I mean, that's without a doubt proves that the models are wrong. But that has gotten so little attention, and so few people have seen that, and it, it's just, it's not gotten any traction. And I. I don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand why the media is not talking about it. I don't understand why politicians don't see it. Um, but you know, they, 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 they're all on the same bandwagon that, that one global warming is real. Two it's caused by fossil fuels and three, it's going to have devastating consequences any day. Yeah. I mean, I think it's dangerous to get too much into to temperature stuff because the assumption is that warming is bad. And really the assumption beyond that is not that warming is bad, but that anything impacted by man is bad. That's why Obama can get away with this ridiculous non sequitur of saying 97% of scientists agree that uh, there's warming and that there's an influence. And then he jumps to, and then he implies that 97% of scientists agree that we should shut down industrial civilization. What, you could even doesn't even imply that it's bad that they agree. They could agree that we're bringing welcome warming. I would bet a lot of money at the beginning of the 20th century when people had a lot more intimate familiarity with the climate since they weren't so insulated from it by modern technology. I mean, I've read stuff about fantasies of melting the whole Arctic, making the whole world, you know, a better place. They would probably dream. They'd probably be disappointed with the amount of warming uh, that we have. They'd be very disappointed with the theory that promised a lot of warming and then delivered very little uh, warming. So it's, 
it's just this, and I mean, it's really all comes down to what I like to call human racism, which is that anything, anytime man has an impact on nature, it must be bad. Anytime anything else has an impact on nature, uh, it's, it's fine. So it's it really, I think a lot of the people in industry buy into that premise though, like this, that man having an impact, like there's this environmental original sin, like it's wrong for us to have, to change anything. Versus, no, we we are the biggest changer of the planet by far. That's why we live the best, the longest. That's why our children don't all die. You know, it's a lot better to be us than to be any other animal. And yeah, we change everything. And what? how big a surprise would it be if we change something about the atmosphere and all of our activities? We change the land. We change the underland. Why not change the atmosphere? The question is, is are, you, are the changes... Um, are you making positive changes in the world? And obviously we are, and obviously uh, many more such changes need to be made. But if, if this environment, if today's world is what coal brings, obviously we need to bring a lot more coal to today's world. I agree, and I just I just don't understand why that is so hard for for the media and politicians both to understand. Well, but I, mean, I don't know because you know you've had some experience with the CIP, and presumably, hopefully, some of our content has clarified certain uh, distinctions. And in my experience, a lot of it is a lot of my benefit is coming from philosophy and knowing that there's this anti-human uh, environmental philosophy that's been everyone's been indoctrinated with, and that you know man and environment are somehow opposed, and that you know, changing, changing the rest of nature is inherently environmentally bad. And once you sort that out and see, no, it's the human environment, and in fact, we, you know, we change it for the good, that's, we, that's how we survive, then it, it, it puts things into, into different categories. But if, if someone has the wrong concepts and the wrong framework, they'll just botch it every time. That's why, the, you know, the, so much of the focus is, okay, what exactly are temperatures? Like they'll let they let their debate be reduced to, I mean they'll even let there be uh, a debate. There should be no debate even remotely resembling this. Climate should not be the focus. Climate is the focus of a primitive society that doesn't have fossil fuels and technology. Climate should not be the focus of an advanced society unless you had some fantastic set of unusual problems. But the idea of you know oh there's a big storm in New York that many fewer people died from than they would have than would have you know 50 years ago. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's like we've just, we sort of pretend we're a primitive society and all we're afraid of is climate of all things, when in fact we've progressed from primitive societies that should be afraid of climate. And our contribution, Obama's contribution, is to try to make us a primitive society that really should be afraid of climate. When I, I think from, a, from the industry standpoint, our concern is that this indoctrination has, ha has been occurring over such a long period of time that it's going to take a long period of time to reverse it. And the regulations and the, the things that we're seeing affect the industry can have a devastating impact on the industry in a short term. And yet we see it as we need a much longer time to change everyone's opinions. And so I think our, our issue or our struggle is how do we, how do we shorten that time because we need people to see the benefits of fossil fuels in the next, you know, five to eight years. We don't have 20 years to reverse everyone's bias and opinion. 
to counteract what they've been here in the last 20 years. Yeah, that's a really helpful point. And that just, I just had an idea of, well, then let's, so what's the fastest way of doing this? Well, I think um, a public embarrassment of the other side in debate would be a good way of doing it. Um, so, and, and, you know, they can say there's no debates and then, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but there should be a real, I mean, in reality, if you notice, my, my tone is contemptuous of the other position because it, it is um, a contemptible position. It's a very logical position, and um, most people hold it unthinkingly and defying all common sense. Uh, so, you know, we need to, I think we need to get the industry, coal, oil, natural gas, on the offensive, not just, not just like, Oh yeah, let's fight again. This Obama came out with a plan, so now let's talk. No, we're leading human progress, and this guy is not only you know sticking us in the mud; he's trying to like have a mudslide and just kill progress around the globe with these uh, you know sort of combination of uh, you know your your sort of uh, typical doomsday theory, and then your sort of typical. Uh, socialist central planning with pet technology, which just happens to be the worst, one of the worst technologies ever devised. And so, what the hell? Like, let's let's move forward. And if yeah, if you say there's no, if you say there's no debate, and you're going to win. Like, come debate. And then if he won't, or if someone else won't, just keep, you know, publicizing it. But it has to be framed differently. As you know, you know, should we stop human progress? We say no. Obama says yes. Um, well, and the one thing I'll add is how hard that is for the industry to change our strategy. For so long, we have been defensive. And, you know, just thinking about it as you were talking, you know, I even think about what I said, you know, 30 minutes ago. You know, 30 minutes ago, I said, as an underground mine, from the surface point of view, we don't impact the environment. You know, I, I, you know, even as much as you and I have talked and as much as I've read uh, your material and listened to you speak and, and, and listened to Power Hour and seen the blog post, because I've been doing it so long, I still naturally want to defend. I still naturally want to say, well, we're, we're an underground mine. We really don't affect the environment that much. And I think that's, that's hard as uh, employees. I think that's hard as an industry for us to change the way we've been so defensive over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. Yeah, I'll have to wrap up in a minute. Although I'm really enjoying this. I'm thinking, yeah, just even this conversation is making me feel like, when I think about CIP, because CIP, you know, one of the big things we do is we work with, you know, most people are embarrassed to be affiliated with the fossil fuel industry. You know, we, we proudly are affiliated. We have clients in the fossil fuel industry because we want to teach people how to do you know, better messaging so they can increase their freedom and benefit, um, you know, to the benefit of all. Uh, but it makes me want to get involved even more just myself in public debates because there is, I think there are certain things where it's going to be hard to train, you know, a CEO to debate Al Gore or something like that or to debate, you know, an Obama administration official. But those debates need to happen. And, you know, we have the people who can, who can make those happen uh, and win. So I'm going to think uh, going forward just about how to set up those things um because i think the more we hold the more successful we are the more the other side is going to be on the defensive and if it's known that there's just you know a bunch of 
people on the warpath in favor of human progress uh, and against you know energy strangulation. I think it'd be interesting to see how they respond because right now they just have it's just easy pickings, right? It's just they the issue is climate. They're defenders of climate stability, which is you know, a meaningless term or a non-existent thing. And, you know, they're opponents of climate change. And then industry is trying to say, well, we're not as bad as you think, or you, you're going to lose some jobs if you do the moral thing. So let's delay it another five years to this and that. It's just, it's such a wimpy position. It's no wonder Obama is a big, you know, can make this, this plan and it, and it scares people. But if the thing is reframed and the other side goes on the offensive, uh, then Obama is, you know, viewed as a, you know, as some sort of uh, quasi-socialist, uh, Luddite, um, sort of primitive mentality who's afraid of the weather, uh, but not afraid of um, not having electricity. I think, you know, two things it makes me think of with, with what you just said. One is, I don't think the environmentalists have ever been on the defensive. And I, I agree. I don't think they would react well to that. The other thing is just back to what a what an uphill battle we have. You know, politically, I believe uh, President Obama said what he said yesterday because he thinks a lot of people, the majority of Americans, agree with him, and that's a way to build support and a way to bring everybody together to support him and his administration. And so I think, um, you know, that's just a sign of, you know, when 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 the ratings are down, what can you do to get everybody to agree? And he tries to pick the one thing that he thinks everybody agrees on, which is let's all get against fossil fuels. Most people are against it. And so I, I think that just goes to show how much of a, you know, how much work we have to do. But I think you're right. I think that's what we need to be on the offensive. And if we can ever get them on the defensive side of the argument, uh, I think it's over. All right. Well, you, you started out depressing me a little bit, but now I'm now I'm feeling more uh, more motivated because I think I mean more motivated than I was before the call, and I was motivated before the call. So uh, yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you uh, you coming on the show. Any any final thoughts? Any websites you want to share with anyone? No, I just just make a final comment that one uh, you know we as the you know anybody involved in the coal industry is is very proud to be working in that industry and proud of, of what we have provided to America and the world. And two, just want to say thanks for the work you've done in helping educate us and educate everyone else that fossil fuels, including coal, improve people's quality of life dramatically. And I think that's something that, that even as the coal industry, we have forgotten what what an impact we've made on society. Or never, or never fully been taught. Or never fully been taught. Absolutely. Uh, all right, Heath. Thank you for coming on. Thank pleasure. you, Alex. Mine too. Thanks again to Heath Lovell for coming on the show. I thought it was a really interesting interview, and it progressed not quite as I had expected. I was, I was expecting to spend all the time just on hearing about how the coal industry works, uh, you know, from a, from an intimate, direct perspective. But as we went on, I, you know, my own, a lot of my own passion is helping businesses figure out how to communicate more effectively. And Heath raised 
a lot of the challenges that go into that. And so it was really fun to, uh, to talk about what some of those challenges are, how to overcome them, and also to talk about President Obama's recent climate speech. It's almost impossible to leave that out. I'm glad that we both got a chance to talk about that. Uh, my main takeaway point from today, though, is, is not so much the, the climate speech, but the need of industry to take the high ground, and as high a ground as possible. And particularly, the idea of being a leader of progress, I think, is a very powerful idea, and it's certainly a very true idea that applies to industry. So it's really bad positioning and inaccurate to portray it as, well, we haven't changed climate as much as you think. Like That is in no way the defining issue about what the coal industry or any other industry does. The defining issue is how by producing a really high caliber of energy, it contributes to massive human progress. That's what's been happening for the last 300 years. That's what's been happening for the last 30 years. And that's what can continue to happen unless the anti-progress crowd, the so-called environmentalists, uh, continue to restrict development. So one, one thing I'm going to be working with uh, with businesses going forward, businesses in general and clients in particular, is really emphasizing the progress uh, narrative. And of course, if uh, any of you listening uh, want to take part in that, you know, let me know, particularly if, if you're from um, you know, an energy association, energy company, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. Just email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. And of course, that email address applies to all of you. If you ever have any questions, comments, love mail, and hate mail, again, it's alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back with another great guest, another great topic. But until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.